Welcome and thank you for joining us as we crash the war party, a new podcast at crashingthewarparty.substack.com. My name is Kelly Blahos, and I am joined by my friends and co-conspirators, Daniel Larson and Barbara Bolin. Barbara, Daniel, and I are all colleagues and former colleagues, and all three of us have been collectively writing for decades about the military industrial complex and the swampy ecosystem that is the Beltway Blob. So being our first show, we'd like to tell you a little bit about what we hope to accomplish with this podcast. We find ourselves in the so-called post-Trump era under a new democratic regime that is supposed to end endless wars, stand up for human rights instead of snuggling with dictators, and begin to get our own house in order on the home front. So why does it feel like deja vu all over again? That's because you can swap out the faces and the names and the language, but like deck chairs on the Titanic, nothing will be different until the ideas change and the incentives for maintaining the status quo are taken away. The status quo is about maintaining massive military budgets that do not match the need or hue to any realistic strategy, but do everything to keep the top five defense contractors fat and happy. The status quo means an entire galaxy of primacist think tankers, lobbyists, courtiers, consultants, academics, and journalists who support the mobilization for war, even if they never wanna be in one. It's what pays, it's called power and influence. The status quo means condescending to anyone who thinks differently or worse, banishing them to the margins of professional purgatory. It means circling the wagons around orthodoxy and dogma while hanging independent thinkers and whistleblowers and pioneers out to dry. The vanguard of this status quo is the war party and we are going to crash it. With straightforward talk about the latest headlines in politics, under the radar news and interviews with newsmakers, politicians, journalists, and activists, we will try to make some sense of the imperial city and its denizens. We'll shine a light on the corruption and the hypocrisy that pervades the national security state and the appalling disconnect between the Washington elites and the people who fight and die in their wars. And since it is a party, then we'll have a little fun at the blob's expense. So thank you for joining us. And in light of that, I'd like to turn this over to my good friend, Daniel Larison. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit in this first episode of what we want to accomplish with crashing the war party. So, so Dan, tell me a little bit about yourself and what you see as the goal of crashing the war party. Sure. Thanks, Kelly. I appreciate that. Uh, And I, uh, when we came up with the name, I think we, we had the same idea in mind which was to challenge the, the conventional groupthink, the uh, bipartisan consensus, the kind of unthinking consensus that develops around a lot of major foreign policy issues where members from both parties buy into a series of, of unexamined uh, and, and questionable assumptions that end up propelling us towards conflict uh, and, and leading us down the path towards uh, unnecessary wars in many different regions of the world. Uh, we see this with uh, the, the broad bipartisan support for backing Ukraine against Russia without thinking through what that might mean for the stability and security of Europe, uh, as well as our own security. Uh, we see it in the uh, increasingly strident hawkish rhetoric against China uh, and ever more agitation for uh, openly declaring our commitment to defend Taiwan. Uh, just last year, there was a, a big article uh, advocating for making that commitment explicit uh, and, and essentially uh, locking ourselves into 
a collision with China over an issue that matters far more to them than to us. And these these uh, attitudes are uh, very often uh, unquestioned. Uh, they they go uh, without serious challenge. And so what I think uh, this podcast can do, what this show can do, is to deliver uh, a serious and sustained challenge to that kind of uh, lazy conventional thinking and, and to explode the assumptions that go into these uh, sorts of policy debates uh, that, that end up fueling our uh, unnecessary commitments in so many parts of the world. Uh, and, and that can be extended to many other parts of the world uh, beyond Europe and East Asia. Uh, we see the same thing with the uh, bipartisan consensus that Iran is some great threat uh, to U.S. interests, when in fact the threat that they pose is quite minimal. Uh, or the overwhelming reliance on sanctions, no matter who happens to be in power, the, the idea that we are that we have the right to wage economic war on anyone as we see fit for whatever reason. Uh, th these are the kinds of things that we're going to be uh, challenging and, and I hope uh, overthrowing over time. Uh, and, and I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, Barbara, what? What are you? What, tell me a little bit about yourself. I know that Dan and I have done, you know, uh, some podcasting together before, but tell us a little bit about yourself and and what you see as the future of crashing the war party. Well, I'm really looking forward to sort of lifting the lid a little bit on what our taxpayer dollars are actually funding, and also challenging. I think the oftentimes unwritten assumption. Um, in the foreign policy community that the U.S. is the world's police and that our hegemony is just um, really is not challenged by what we're calling the blob. Um, there's so much that right now is starting to crack in this facade and there's a lot of people that are pushing a new narrative of either a, um, a larger challenge between either the U.S. and Russia or the U.S. and China. And that's going to be a real challenge that we'll, we will have to push back on, I think, um, because China is a, a growing um, country that has... Um, a lot to offer, but also um, the Biden administration is making some noises that could potentially, you know, we could potentially be escalating towards a more threatening position towards China, especially given everything that's happened with the coronavirus. So this is a particularly challenging time in the foreign policy world. And I'm also really looking forward to all of the discussions that we can have about transparency and how much the U.S. spends on the military and on wars and how much we've spent, for instance, on building highways in Afghanistan and on the war in Iraq and questions like how many soldiers we have stationed overseas and in what countries, because we don't have a lot of clarity on those questions or we don't actually have even the answers to those questions. And also other things like what our intelligence services are doing in foreign countries and what countries are they in and what does our foreign aid go towards and what is it used for? And also 
what are we spending that on? And again, in what countries? Um, so many Americans would love for us to, for instance, spend money on infrastructure in the U.S. And it's always sort of um, shocking to see the amount of money that has been spent in Afghanistan and Iraq and on these wars. I mean, it's trillions of dollars now. And, um, and I really appreciate the opportunity to take a look at these things and challenge the assumptions that the U.S. has to be the one to fix all of the world's problems and insert itself, especially since we have not fixed the problems after 19 years in Afghanistan. We still have, have not really come up with a good solution there. So the assumption that we can fix it and that we will be able to, um, I think it's, it's really a good opportunity to question the conventional wisdom. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that all three of us being writers um, on Washington politics and national security and foreign policy, that we've probably noticed that under the Biden administration, there seems to be a congealing of the establishment talking points that uh, that we should be extricating uh, from endless wars, that diplomacy is a better tool in the toolbox than uh, a military power. There seems to be some acknowledgement that restraint is the more, um, you know, uh, is it, it should be the more prevailing order of the day. As somebody who's been writing in this space for 20 years, I'm a little skeptical when I hear, when I start hearing the blob, you know, start, you know, gathering their wagons around a set of uh, talking points or a narrative. And I'm, while I'm happy that uh, some in, you know, there seems to be some co-optation of this language of restraint and anti-war and demilitarization, um, I, I'm still hesitant until I start seeing these things in action and policy in Washington. And given that the Biden administration has put a lot of these old uh, Obama retreads uh, and even Clinton types in, in uh, positions of authority and power in Washington, it's hard for me to believe that they are actually going to um, reform or change, modify the conventional thinking. And so it's a sort of wait, we're, I feel like we're in a wait and see we were waiting to see if we're getting out of Afghanistan. We're waiting to see if the Biden administration might start acting more aggressively with um, uh, by arming Ukraine, for example, against Russia, what it's doing in China. It sounds like they're talking tough every day. So um, I think this podcast is very necessary right now because I want to call out the hypocrisy. I want to call out the uh, a disconnect between what's being said and what's actually being done and to maintain a, a real um, pressure on the war party uh, to, to act uh, in the right way. And like Barbara, like you pointed out, there are so many areas to talk about in terms of transparency and spending. And, um, you know, that's really where the real action is, is how are they spending the money? And what are they uh, prioritizing? Uh, not a bunch of op-eds in Foreign Affairs magazine about kumbaya and diplomacy. I also think that the phrase, end endless wars, 
is one that's popular. So mm-hmm. you do see both sides adopt that language and that mentality. It's definitely polls well. But then when you get to our foreign policy um, professionals and the complex, we don't see the toolbox that allows them to actually end endless wars. And you can kind of see that when we when you see the professionals talking about why they can't get out of Afghanistan in the third the timeline that they agreed to because they say, Oh, we don't, we can't do it. We, we don't have the, we, it's only six weeks away. Well, why you had six months? Like why didn't, so why can't you, or even just the fact that the solutions that we seem to come up with, even towards like Iran, it's send over an aircraft carrier into the Gulf or things like this that are always more escalatory than de-escalatory and they're never diplomatic. They're more military. So it, it's going to be interesting to also talk about other ways of handling, um, you know, other ways of handling threats and other ways of handling these t- issues because we have been dealing with North Korea, Iran, and Russia for uh, as a as a th- military threat for decades now and we've had very similar approaches and we really haven't gotten any closer to a solution so talking about solutions would be uh, very helpful too i think uh, yeah absolutely and i think one of the things that we can do uh, is to to highlight uh, where biden's rhetoric and, and his actions have uh, diverged pretty sharply from one another uh, he, he came in uh, touting the virtues of diplomacy uh, he made a point of going to the state department addressing the foreign service officers and, and praising them for the importance of their work uh, but then what we see uh, in the first few months is uh, this real reluctance to engage in uh, diplomatic uh, talks with other states, uh, be it uh, the, the, the foot dragging with Iran or the kind of lack of interest in engaging with North Korea uh, and, and the lack of interest in really pursuing an arms control agenda with Russia beyond extending New START. And so you you hear them say that diplomacy is back, America is back to work with its allies uh, through diplomatic engagement, but then uh, they're, they're not really executing. They're not following through on that. Uh, and so that's, and then we, we see that with the, the pressure tactics that they're already trying to use against allies, uh, for instance, with Germany over Nord Stream 2. Uh, these, are, these are still the same heavy-handed tactics of uh the Trump administration. Do, uh, of the Trump administration, yes, exactly. Uh, do things our way or we will penalize you. And while, yes, pressure may sometimes be useful in diplomatic negotiations, it can't be all sticks all the time. Uh, and unfortunately, I, I fear that's what we keep seeing coming from Biden as well. Uh, and that's why they're, they're so, they seem to be so reluctant to offer anything to Iran, even though we're the ones that violated the agreement and left it. Uh, they, they, they're terrified of being accused of being appeasers, and so they, they end up uh, failing to do the things that they said they would do, and you end up uh, de facto with continuations of Trump-era policies that Biden explicitly said he was going to overturn. And, and so that's, and that's unfortunately how you end up with a lot of continuities in U.S. foreign policy from one administration to another. Each president, no matter what he campaigned on, feels compelled not to take risks. Uh, and, and so one of the things I think we can do is try to, to show 
U.S. officials that these risks are worth taking, that they're actually popular, that the, that the public will respond favorably to them if they do that. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I I totally agree. And um, Barb, did you want to jump in there? Yeah, I was just going to add a little bit to that, that I think there was, uh, it was rather shocking that in one of the, I think it was in a week's time, the Biden administration had threatened sanctions on four different countries. So it was <laughs> Venezuela, Russia, <laughs> um, I think um, maybe China, and then yeah. And it's, it's really shocking. For one, it doesn't appear that the U.S. And, oh, and um, maybe it's not China. It's, it's probably uh, Yemen. But in the China too, Houthis and China too. So maybe there might have been actually five or six countries if you expand <laughs> it beyond that weak timeline. But what's crazy is sanctions are, um, you know, they they violate international law. They are a tool that, and the reason they violate international law is because that we are the U.S. is a signatory to. They punish the population of a country. So they don't serve the purpose for which we claim they're going to uh, serve. We say, oh, this is a horrible dictator. He doesn't care about his people. We're going to slap sanctions on them. So why do we think that's going to work if he doesn't care about his people? So so because we're that's what who they hurt. They just yeah. cause the people to suffer. And then and inevitably they actually backfire the population tends to rally around the dictatorial leader, and then we end up in a worse situation than before. But oddly enough, the Biden administration had, had is threatening sanctions on Germany, and it's very strange. It's because of the um, the pipeline with Russia, and it's just this attitude that the U.S. has that we should control not only really anymore just being the world's police, but also that we should control trade deals all over the world, that we yeah. can say, no, you can't trade with Russia. Like, who are we to say that? <laughs> and by the way, like, it really is quite arrogant. And, and, and in this, it is very interesting. It doesn't really match with what, um, what the different leaders and parties portray themselves as pretty often. So I hope that we can definitely call call attention to these different hypocrisies and also mm -hmm. point out some other options besides the the tools that the U.S. seems to be frequently using. Right. There are so many other ways to handle problems besides sanctions, and we certainly don't need to have a bad relationship with Germany, of all places, um, because they have a pipeline. Like, yeah. They need oil, okay? Like, <laughs> who are we to tell them who they can trade with? It's so ridiculous that that, that arrogance, though, yeah. is really quite an issue. And it's part of the reason I think that this podcast, you know, exists is this is the arrogance that's happened for quite some time. I mean, you can go, we could go way back, but definitely yeah. for the last 20 years. Yeah, I think I, 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 I completely agree the arrogance has to be underscored and it has to be called out. And uh, I think we've, we've pretty much detailed uh, how, um, how much we have on our plate here <laughs> at crashing the war party. Uh, so anyway, with that, uh, I am going to wrap this up for now, but please, uh, if you are listening, we have uh, a, a bevy of people that we're hoping to bring on this show 
journalists, academics, uh, people who uh, talk about these issues that are influencers in this space, uh, politicians, hopefully, um, and, uh, you know, a, a cast, a, a rotating cast of characters who are working uh, just like we are to sort of pull up the rocks and see what's, you know, crawling around underneath. And again, we uh, are we are being hosted at uh, crashingthewarparty.substack.com and we will be on a number of different platforms for accessibility. So thank you for joining us and we will hopefully uh, be around soon.